Hello and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brett Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 131st episode of the Not A Cast titled Fire on the Mountain, an analysis of a Clash of Kings John 6 in which John and his new ranger buddies go hunting for wildling scouts only for John to get a crush on one. Oh, John, what are you doing, man? His absolute best, I guess. John's just always doing his very best. Yeah, he's doing his best. And I guess, you know, it is a redhead, so I guess we have to give him that, right? I think we can forgive him. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the Ship that Stalks the Seven Seas, and Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the Blade that Brings the Deep Ones, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster Jume, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, Ward of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the Hybrid of Priest, Lord Jake Assisted to the Hand of the King, Lady Z of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Worthy East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamis, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Dent, True Master of the Bainfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex... Who has a new title, which is Beyonce's favorite stand and bastard of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander, the Thades, and Gentle Thems. Haldiver, the waiter for T-Wow. A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron, Crow's Eye. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town. Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name. Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Fart, the Overworked. Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft. Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones. Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpio of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties of the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, The Cadaver King and Horror of Harrenhal, Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Yes, I know it is two times that that person is on the small council list. Not a small council list, rather. And that is intentional. The person is uh, did a patron for, their, for a friend of theirs. So we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Anyways, Lord Jean, the Splendid, Master of Coin, Warden of Tampa Bay, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway, Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Manor, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Warden of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, Master of Source, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector and Protector of the Tri-State, Hedgegold, Captain of the Airship Arrogans, Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, and our newest member of the small council, uh, newest member of the Not a Small Council, everyone give a warm welcome to Lord Kyle. Thank you to all our patrons, and welcome to Lord Kyle. And thank you to our counselors as always, and a special welcome to Lord Kyle. Thank you so much for being with us. 
and our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially talk about all published books. That is the five novels, three ducky novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Darren S., a sworn sword, who asks, During my quarantine, I've had a few things to think about, and one of them has turned into a rather head-scratcher is the question of Longclaw being at the Wall. Why would House Mormont, one of two houses in the north by my count, forsake their priceless family heirloom to an old man destined to die childless at the Wall? Furthermore, the family seems to be just fine with maids just giving away the sword. Alice and Mormont doesn't even bring up the sword at all during Ash's chapters. I find it increasingly unlikely that a house is egalitarian and martial as Mormont could be chill with just giving away a sword such as this, when the sword could be used as part of a bargaining tool to negotiate a good wedding. Is this a case of George needing Jon Snow to have a Valyrian sword, or is there something else going on? I hate to place this on the Blood Raven is plotting this out and Jon is too dumb to figure it out list, but something doesn't square up. And what do you think about that, Jeff? I mean, if if J.R. Mormont wants to just take Longclaw to the wall and sit on it and let it rot behind his closet or whatever he said in book one, I mean, is there really any way for the other Mormonts to stop him? Not really. And I do kind of wonder whether like this was part of the bargain for G.R. Mormont. Hmm. He's like, okay, Lady Mage, you can become the Lady of Bear Isle, but I'm taking my fucking sword with me up to the wall. So you're going to have to live with that. That does sound Are you good like that him. bargain? Right. I mean, it kind of does sound like him. He would just be gruff like, no, that's my sword. I'm a guy. I have the sword and I can't give it to Jorah because he's a fucking piece of shit. It's really unfortunate how the house, how House Mormon is doing these days. I think that, you know, at the end of A Game of Thrones, it's brought up about Jorah Mormont, how he basically brought shame to the Mormont family. And it does feel like at some level, Jorah Mormont was planning on returning the sword to Jorah after he died. So his assumption was that Jorah Mormont would follow Jorah in terms of being the the heir of, of Bear Isle and would also be the Lord of Bear Isle. And of course, he was the Lord of Bear Isle for a short while, but Jorah Mormont was still alive and Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And that, of course, ended very poorly because Jorah Mormont ended up being, again, an enormous piece of shit in selling people into to slavery, to a Tyroshi slaver, as, as we find out in A Game of Thrones. I do think that there is a potential element, too, about Jorah Mormont. And we don't really see this explicitly in... And you can correct me if I'm wrong. We don't see this explicitly in the interactions of Gior Mormont, but there might be like a misogyny aspect to it too, where Gior's like, yes, this sword can go to Jorah or I guess another dude, but it's definitely not going to Mage. It's not going to Alisane. It's not going to Daisy. It's not going to any of my my nieces who could potentially wield it. I, I do think that might be a factor as well, because as much as Gior is sympathetic character. He does retain some of the hallmarks of both Westerosi patriarchy as well as the noble culture, which seems to embrace the patriarchy, so to speak. What do you think, sir? I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Jorah had the sword for a bit, right, and then left it at Bear Island right, when he right, went right, into right, exile. Yeah. And then it somehow ended up on the wall, which makes me think, yeah, I mean, that this was just, a, you know, a thing in book one that George wasn't thinking the backstory of too deeply. He just wanted John to have his own sword that wasn't ice. But... Thinking about within the family dynamics, I mean, looking at the other Mormons, I mean, maybe the reason they were fine with it is they have their own weapons, they have their own fighting styles, they don't necessarily need a long sword, and, you know, that's obviously not not the only way to fight. And, uh, yeah, maybe they just, you know, you get the sense of the Mormont woman from what you see them in A Storm of Swords, that they kind of just look at the men in the family as just kind of preposterous, and <laughs> are definitely wounded by what happened with Jorah. And are probably put off by Jor, but you know they have each other, and there's plenty of them, and they they have their people, and they're not they don't seem especially wounded by it. So it might just be you know yeah, Jor's pride and just kind of sulking into himself that that leads the sword where it is. But it's clearly an open wound, and he wants someone to pass it to, just not the people he could have. 
which is you know that's the that's the the double edged sword so to speak of the found families like you know it's it's very sweet but it's also you know in the shadow of the bonds you didn't have so there's a sadness to the mormons in that way I agree. And I do think like there's, you know, what's what's the distinction? The Watsonian versus the Doyleist perspective where the the, the is it the Watsonian is like the in-universe explanation, the Doyleist is the is the external or do I have that reversed? No, you got it right. Either or I think good. I'm good. I'm so good so good to sound smart. Um <laughs> The Doyle's perspective is the one that that Darren puts out in the questions that George did need, need Jon Snow to have a Valyrian steel sword. Likely in his confrontation with the others, as we find out at least in show canon, Valyrian steel is one of the few substances to include obsidian that can actually kill another. And that seems to be the way the way that George wanted to have Jon to gain that weapon in order to, to kill another. But again, I, I do like the in-universe explanations that, that you provide, sir. And I think there's potential that that is in play here. It might also be something that George wasn't really thinking about. It's like, just, yeah, John needs a Valyrian steel sword, but ice is going to be in King's Landing, so he can't have ice. So what's he going to have? Oh, okay, yeah, Gior Mormon obviously has a Valyrian steel sword that he has here up at the wall, and he's giving it to, uh, right. to Jon Snow. Very convenient. Absolutely. So thank you, Darren, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You are welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-Y-A-F where you can get show notes, bonus episodes, merch, and more. Absolutely. And we're pleased to reveal that our next patron-only episode for all $5 patrons will be a full movie review, movie review movie review of the movie Kingdom of Heaven. No, no, not that shitty theatrical cut that came out that the theaters botched and ruined the artistry of Ridley Scott. No, it's actually the director's cut that is the glory piece atop Ridley Scott's cinematic crown. And we'll be joined for that Patreon-only episode by Luke is Amazing on Twitter. He is also the co-host of the People's History of the Old Republic podcast, which is a great podcast. If you guys love A Song of Ice and Fire, you would love some of the Old Republic stories that have come out in the years since Bioware were released Knights of the Old Republic back in 2003. So again, you could find that episode at the end of the month and find all of our other bonus episodes, again, at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But... Enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with John back in the year 1945, he had discovered an innocuous cache of obsidian weapons at the Fist of the First Men and volunteered to go with Corn Halfhand into the Frost Fangs to track down what Mance Raider was seeking in the mountains. Does this feel like a different series than the one we've been covering so far in all of our other point of views in A Clash of Kings? It does for me, at least. And I love it. Let's find out what happens to John as he journeys to the Frost Fangs in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, John 6. They could see the fire in the night, glimmering against the side of the mountain like a fallen star. It burned redder than the other stars and did not twinkle, though sometimes it flared up bright and sometimes dwindled down to no more than a distant spark, dull and faint. John thinks that the fire is 2,000 feet up and a half mile ahead, and it would see, and it would see anything coming up that way. Squire Dalbridge thinks it's wildlings watching for them. Dalbridge was called Squire Dalbridge because he squired for a king. The name had even stuck after the king had died. Regardless, Dalbridge wonders why Mance fears, while Eben, another ranger, thinks Mance would flay them if they knew they lit a fire. Fire is life up here, said Corn Halfhand. But it could be death as well. By his command, they risked no open flames since entering the mountains. They ate cold salt beef, hard bread and harder cheese, and slept clothed and huddled beneath a pile of cloaks and furs, grateful for each other's warmth. It made John remember cold nights that when it made John remember cold nights long ago at Winterfell when he shared a bed with his brothers. These men were brothers too, though the bed they'd shared was stone and earth. 
Stone Snake, what what a breath of fresh air from all of those goddamn iron name, Ironborn names from last week. Says they're going to have a horn, and Halfhan says they cannot blow the horn. Yeah, they should not blow the horn. They need to get up that mountain, even if it'll be a cruel climb at night into the jagged cliffs and dark skies. And it would be an even longer fall, Corrin puts in. He wants two men to do the mission, to get up, to do the fire. Me, the ranger they called Stone Snake, had already shown that he was the best climber among them. It would have to be him. And me, said Jon Snow. Corrin looks at Jon, and Jon hears the wind howling around him. He tells Jon that Ghost is staying, but once they accomplish the mission, they are to throw a burning brand off the mountain. Stone Snake says it's go time. So Stone Snake grabs rope and a bag of iron spikes, and Jon gets another cord of rope too. They leave their horses behind, and Jon gives Ghost a pet for being a good boy. He's coming back for him. Stone Snake leads, and we learn that he's 50, wiry, with a gray beard, yet he's strong with great night eyes. Probably very hot, too. John knows they need that night vision out here now, as they would be climbing the mountains lit white and silver by the moon. It's beautiful imagery that George embeds into this chapter. So the rangers move up through the twisting path and black shadows moving slowly through hard terrain. But where Stone Snake knew by instinct where to put his feet, John needed to be more careful. As for the Skirling Pass, it wasn't just one pass. It was a series of passes through icy peaks where no one lived and the wind howled around the few trees. Yet even so, Jon Snow was not sorry he had come. There were wonders here as well. He had seen sunlight flashing on icy thin waterfalls as they plunged over the lips of sheer stone cliffs, and a mountain meadow full of autumn wildflowers, blue cold snaps, and bright scarlet frost fires, and stands of piper's grass and russet and gold. He had peered down ravines so deep and black that they seemed to, that they seemed certain to end in some hell, and he had ridden his garron over a wind-eaten bridge of natural stone with nothing but sky to either side. Eagles nested in the heights and came down to hunt the valley, circling effortlessly on great blue-gray wings that seemed almost part of the sky. Once he had watched a shadow cat stalk a ram flowing down the mountainside like liquid smoke until it was ready to pounce. John decides that this is not a metaphor. They would be pouncing soon enough. He's got Longclaw with him, along with a derrick and a dagger, and he had, if he had to move in for a closer kill. The men move up the trail for a while, with the mountain obstructing their view of the fire for a time before the fire would always reappear and they inch forward through the winding, dangerous trail too narrow for horses. One step and then another, John told himself. One step and then another, and I will not fall. John hadn't shaved his peach fuzz that he called a mustache, and now it was covered with frost. And then the wind picked up as he clings to the rock, praying not to get blown off the mountain. One step and then another, he resumed when the gale subsided. One step and then another, and I will not fall. Now they are so high that John doesn't want to look down. He tries to remember what Stone Snake told him about clinging to the mountain like it was his mother's nip. John jokes saying that he never knew who his mom was, but eh, that wasn't so hilarious that he found out here in the Frost Fangs. He was not joking about it now. But now the track ended and they come to black granite. They need to climb so as to be above the wildlings. Stone Snake tells John that they will work together, connecting the rope to each other and taking stakes to the face of the mountain. John doesn't even answer before Stone Snake is clambering up the mountain. John watches Stone Snake studying him as he moves and then attempts to replicate him moving up the mountain after him. But as soon as he catches up with Stone Snake, he moves up and away from John. As John moves, he tries tapping on the spike with a hammer, afraid the wildlings would hear him. He keeps holding onto the mountain, practically yelling himself not to look down. His foot slips once and his heart stops, but John does not fall. But the cold seeps into his fingers, but he keeps his gloves off, afraid that he would fall. He hopes that the skin would grow back from the skin he was ripping against the cold and stone. Maybe he could even keep all of his fingers by climb's end. Up they went, and up, and up, and up, black shadows creeping across the moonlit wall of rock. Anyone down on the floor of the pass would have seen them easily, but the mountain hid them from the view of the wildlings by their fire. They were close now, though. 
John consented. Even so, he did not think of the foes who were waiting for him, all unknowing, but of his brother at Winterfell. John, Bran used to love to climb. I wish I had a temp- I wish I had a tenth part of his courage. Okay, I'm not feeling any emotions at all about John wishing that he was as brave as Bran. None of us are, of course. You know, must big strong band. The sheer face of the wall was broken by fissures in the stone, and Stone Snake reaches up a hand to pull John up. Once up, John copies Stone Snake and gets his gloves back on, and then they crawl towards the fire. They find that the wildlings had built a watchfire in a shallow depression, and John and Stone Snake crawl right over the men they had they had to kill. They see one of the wildling dudes with flaming red hair asleep under a mound of furs while another was staring at the fire complaining about the wind and the third was watching the pass the guy that guy had the horn that that guy had the horn corn said they would have three for a moment john was uncertain there was only supposed to be two one was asleep though and whether there was two or three or twenty he still must do what he had come to do stone snake touched his arm pointing at the wildling with the horn john nodded toward the one by the fire it felt queer picking a man to kill Half the days of his life had been spent with sword and shield training for this moment. Did Rao feel this way before his first battle? He wondered, but there was no time to ponder the question. Stonesake moved as fast as his namesake, leaping down on the wildlings in a rain of pebbles. John slid Longclaw from its sheath and followed. It all seemed to happen in a heartbeat. Afterward, John could admire the courage of the wildling who went first for his horn instead of his blade. He got it to his lips, but before he could sound it, Stone Snake knocked the horn aside with a, sh- with a swipe of his short sword. John's man leapt to his feet, thrusting at his face with a burning brand. He could feel the heat of the flames as he flinched back. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw the sleeper stirring and knew he must finish his man quick. When the brand swung again, he bowled into it, swinging the bastard sword with both hands. The Valyrian steel sheared through leather, fur, wool, and flesh. But when the wildling fell, he twisted, ripping the sword from John's grasp. On the ground, the sleeper sat up beneath his furs. John slit his dirk free, grabbing the man by the hair and jamming the point of the knife up under his chin as he reached for his... No. Her. His hand froze. A girl. Stone Snake says it's a watcher and a killer. John sees the fear and fire in her eyes while blood runs down from where his dirk pricked her. He thinks about doing it, thinking she's as old as John is. But she seems somehow like Arya, so he asks her to yield instead. I yield, her words steamed to the cold air. You're a captive then. He pulled the dirk away from the soft skin of her throat. Corrin said nothing of taking captives, said Stone Snake. He never said not to. John let go of his grip on the girl's hair and she scuttled backward away from them. She's a spear wife, Stone Snake gestured the long hafted axe that lay beside her sleeping furs. She was reaching for that when you grabbed her. Give her half a chance and she'll bury it between her eyes. I won't give her half a chance. John kicked the axe well out of the girl's reach. Do you have a name? Ygritte? Her hands rubbed at her throat and came away bloody. She stared at the wetness. Ah, so the story of John and Ygritte begins with Ygritte as temporary captive of Jon Snow. Let's see if that reverses at some point in the story. Ygritte asks for John's name and he gives it to her, but she flinches, calling it an evil name. No, no, not an evil name, according to John. It's a bastard name. His dad was Lord Eddard Stark of Winterfell. Totally. Stone Snake teases him that the captives were supposed to be the ones giving up information, but he doubts that she will. Wildlings would bite off their tongues rather than answer questions. Stone Snake then tosses a burning brand off the mountain. You ought to burn them. You killed City Grit. Need a bigger fire for that, and big fires, big fires burn bright. Snow, Stone Snake turned, his eyes scanning the black distance for any spark of light. Are there more wildlings close by? Is that it? Burn them, the girl repeated. Or it might be you'll need them swords again. John remembered dead author in his black, cold black hands. Maybe we should do as she says. But Stone Snake already has this figured out. He strips the bodies of the men and tosses them over the side of the mountain with John helping on the second body. 
Grit watches but remains silent. She knows her Miranda rights. Good on her. John realizes that she's older than he was, but she was short and maybe plump, though that could have been all the fur, leather, and wool she was wearing. John asks if she was watching for them. She was. And others. Hmm. Wording. Stonesnake asks what's beyond the scurrying past, and she says the free folk are there. Oh, God. Not that poison subreddit, right? Oh, she just means the wildlings. Thank God. Whew, crisis averted. When Stonesnake asks how many, she says hundreds and thousands, and John thinks she doesn't know how many. But wait, why are they up there? Why are they all up here? Ygritte says nothing. When John asks what Mance Raider wants up at the Frost Fangs, Ygritte continues exercising her Miranda rights. Okay, are you going to march on the wall? She stares into the flames. How about Benjamin Stark? You know about him? Ygritte ignores him, and Stonesnake warns him that she might be spitting out her tongue soon. Rumbles below the party echo off the rock, announcing the arrival of Shadowcats. John draws his sword, but Ygritte says not to worry. They're coming for the dead, not them. Speaking of the dead, John asks if they were family members of Ygritte's. No more than you were. Me? He frowned. What do you mean? You said you were the bastard of Winterfell. I am. Who was your mother? Some woman. Most of them are. Someone had said to them once. He did not remember who. Well, John, that's here you told you that. Remember, buddy? Ah, oh, touching. Anyways, Ygritte asks if John has heard of the song of, Winter, of the Winter Rose, and he hadn't. Well, it's a mixtape made by Bale the Bard, who was king beyond the wall a while back. The wildlings all know the song, but you can't find it on Spotify Basic, found only in the South. When John objects that Winterfell isn't in the South, Ygritte corrects him and says everything south of the wall is south. He never thought of it that way. I suppose it's all in where you're standing. I, Ygritte agreed. It always is. But now that John has some hours before Corn Halfhand arrives, he wants to hear the tale. So Ygritte tells the tale, warning John that he's probably not going to like it. Once upon a time, Bale the Bard was a raider and king beyond the wall. Stone Snake gave a snort. A murderer, robber, and raper is what you mean. That's all in where you're standing too, Ygritte said. And I know, <laughs> I know this is long, but this story I just find fascinating in totality and not worth summarizing. So I'm just going to read the entire Bale the Bard story. <clears throat> The Stark in Winterfell wanted Bale's head, but could never take him, and the taste of failure galled him. One day in his bitterness, he called Bale a craven who prayed only on the weak. When word of that got back, Bale vowed to teach the Lord a lesson. So he scaled the wall, skipped down the king's road, and walked into Winterfell one winter's night with harp in hand, naming himself Sigurik of Skagos. Sigurik, you see, means deceiver in the old tongue, that the first men spoke and the giants still speak. North or South, singers always find a ready welcome, so Bale ate of Lord Stark's own table and played for the Lord in his high seat until half the night was gone. The old songs he played and new ones he made himself, and he played and sang so well that when he was done, the Lord offered him his name his own reward. All I ask is a flower, Bale answered, the fattest flower that blooms in the gardens of Winterfell. Now, as it happens, the winter roses had, been, had come, only then come to bloom, and no flower is so rare nor precious. So the Stark sent to his glass gardens and commanded that the most beautiful of winter roses be plucked for the singer's payment. And so it was done. But one morning come, the singer had vanished, and so had Lord Brendan's maiden daughter. Her bed they found empty, but for the pale blue rose that Bale had left on the pillow where her head had lain. John had never heard this tale before. Which Brandon was this supposed to be? Brandon the Builder lived in the Age of Heroes. Thousands of years before Bale, there was Brandon the Burner and his father Brandon the Shipwright, but... This was Brandon the Daughterless Secret, said sharply. Would you hear the tale or no? He scowled. Go on. Lord Brandon had no other children. At his behest, the black crows flew forth from their castles in the hundreds, but nowhere could they find any, sail, any sign of bale the boars made. For most of a year, they searched to the lost lord, to the lord lost heart and took to his bed, and it seemed as though the line of Starks was at its end. But one night as he lay waiting to die, Lord Brendan heard a child's cry. He followed the sound and found his daughter back in her bedchamber, asleep with a babe at her breast. Bale brought her back? 
No, they had been in Winterfell all the time, hiding with the dead beneath the castle. The maid loved Bale so dearly she bore him a son, the song says. Though, if truth be told, all the maids love Bale in them stories he wrote. Be as that as it may, what's certain is that Bale left the child in payment for the rose he'd plucked unasked, and that the boy grew up to be the next Lord Stark. So there it is. You have Bale's blood in you, same as me. <laughs> that never happened, John said. Egret shrugged. Might be it did, might be it didn't. It's a good song, though. My mother used to sing it to me. She was a woman, too, Jon Snow, like yours. She rubbed her throat where his dirk had cut her. The song ends when they find the babe, but there's a darker end to the story. Thirty years later, when Bale was king beyond the wall and led the free folk south, it was young Lord Stark who met him at the frozen ford and killed him. For Bale would not harm his own son when they met sword to sword. So the son slew the father instead, said John. Aye, she said, but the gods hate kinslayers, even though they kill unknowingly. When Lord Stark returned from the battle, his mother saw Bale's head upon a spear. She threw herself from a tower in her grief. Her son did not long outlive her. One of his lords peeled the skin off of him and wore him for a cloak. <laughs> Your Bale was a liar, John told her, certain now. No, Egret said, but a bard's truth is different than yours or mine. Anyway, you asked for a story, so I told it. She turned away from him, closed her eyes, and seemed to sleep. I know, that was probably way, way too long, and everyone is criticizing my accent and not committing to the Scottish accent, but I try to, you know, try to mix it up a little bit. I'll explain at some other point. Whatever. Oh, fuck it. We're on we go. Corrin Halfhand decides to drape his arrival in Sir Arthur Dane's imagery as he arrives at dawn. Because, of course, Corrin Halfhand is Sir Arthur Dane, right? No. John wakes Egret up and they descend down the mountain to meet them. Ghost runs up to John and Ghost and Man play Egret's shock and fear. Corrin says nothing about Egret when he shows up. Stonesnake makes a quick report about there being three wildlings, and Eben responds that they saw the remains of the two the cats left. She yielded, John felt compelled to say. Corrin's face was impassive. Do you know who I am? Corrin Halfhand. The girl looked half a child beside him, but she faced him boldly. Tell me true. If I fell into the hands of your people and yielded myself, what would win me? A slower death than elsewise. Corrin turns back to John and says they can't feed her or spare men to watch her. Dalbridge says that they need to get up to the wildlings in silence. Eben draws his dagger and says they need to silence her forever. And John, bless him, says that she yielded. Then you must do what needs to be done, Corrin Halfhand said. You are the blood of Winterfell and a man of the Night's Watch. He looked at the others. Come, brothers, leave him to it. It will go easier for him if we do not watch. And he led them up a steep, twisting trail toward the pale pink glow of the sun where it broke through a mountain cleft. And before very long, only John and Ghost remained with the bobbling girl. John thinks Egret would try to make a run for it, but she just stands there. She says that he never killed a woman before, and John shakes his head. No, he, he never has. We die the same as men, but you don't need to do it. Mance would take you. I know he would. Their secret ways, them crows would never catch us. Oh, I'm as much a crow as they are, John said. She nodded, resigned. Will you burn me after? I can't. The smoke might be seen. Egret says, it's fine. It's totally fine. She'll end up in the belly of a shadow cat as John draws Longclaw. He asks if she's afraid, but she's not anymore. Now the sun's up. She pushed her hair aside to bare her neck and knelt before him. Strike hard and true, Crow, or I'll come back and haunt ya. Longclaw was, not, Longclaw was not so long or heavy a sword as his father's ice, but it was Valyrian steel all the same. He touched the ed ed edge of his blade to mark where the blow must fall, and Egret shivered. That's cold, she said. Go on, be quick about it. He raised Longclaw over his head, both hands tight around the grip. One cut with all my weight behind it. He could give her a quick, clean death at least. He was his father's son. Wasn't he? Wasn't he? <laughs> That's just great by George. Do it, she commanded. Do it, she urged him after a moment. Bastard, do it. I can't stay brave forever. When the blow did not fall, she turned her head to look at him. John lowered his sword. 
go, he muttered. Egret stared. Now, he said, before my wits return, go. She went. And that is a Clash of Kings, John 6. You know, as much as I love the politics of King's Landing, the House of the Undying, not Karth, but definitely the House of the Undying, and all the terrific character work George is doing with Tyrion, you know, John is just another breath of fresh air that shocks the system and really got my mind back into John's story. I think this is a great chapter, and I'm curious what you thought of it, sir. So up to this point, little Johnny Snow has not exactly been one of our <laughs> favorite POV characters in the story. His chapters have served their structural purpose in his arc, and there's been some great scenes along the way. The zombie attack, Maester Eamon's monologue, Craster's Keep. But they haven't pulled as much out of us as, say, Catalan's chapters. This is where that changes. From this point on into A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons, John becomes one of my favorite POV characters. The stakes ramp up dramatically, and John is forced to put into action everything he's learned. The wildlings become increasingly central to John's arc starting with this chapter, and George does some of his best work in the series writing the wildlings as both individuals and a group of tribes united only by Mance. But A Clash of Kings, John 6 is also a marvelous work of art in its own right, divorced from the larger context of John's story. It's suspenseful, as George focuses us on John's moment-to-moment decision-making, both during the climb and deciding Egret's fate at the end. It's also beautiful, George bringing some of his most finely crafted imagery to bear on the wonder and terror of the Skirling Pass. And we get a perfect introduction for Egret, who is one of George's most vivid supporting characters. Reading this chapter is like inhaling a deep breath of fresh mountain air in the Frost Fangs. It's just a classic adventure. Yeah, it really is. And this is a place where John Snorri, John Snorri, John Story snaps into focus. The struggles that he experiences are less, I want to be the hero, but I can't. Woe is me. And more <laughs> an escalating series of moral quandaries that cap off with John declaring that he'll ride for Ramsay in the shield hall. Really, a lot of that starts right here in this chapter. But even though John hasn't been our favorite point of view character in A Clash of Kings so far, and even in A Game of Thrones, I do want to highlight how George is integrating setup from earlier chapters into this specific chapter. Specifically, I'm thinking of Elsie Mormont's lack of moral leadership regarding Craster and his wives, leading to the thrilling conclusion of this chapter. Remember back in John 3, where John is questioning Mormont about why they are keeping Craster, this fucking monster, alive? And Mormont gets all moral equivocating on the greater good. You know, here we're also seeing, here we're seeing real growth in John springing from his questioning of Mormont. The greater good in this scenario might just be to kill Ygritte. That way, the wildlings wouldn't discover that the half-hand was seeking for them and what they were after. That way, the wildlings don't hunt Corrin's band through the Frost Fangs, which, of course, is the conclusion of John 7 and, of course, is the conclusion of John's Ark and a Clash of Kings in John 8. But John rejects killing a prisoner of war here. He does the right thing. It's awesome. And it's at personal cost, which is less awesome for John, but really kind of a hell yeah moment from us. That's character growth for John to do the right thing despite the consequences. Unfortunately for John, this will not be the last time he'll be forced into moral quandary. In fact, the stakes will only ratchet up as his arc progresses forward in A Clash of Kings, A Storm of Swords, and A Dance with Dragons. Following up on what you were saying about the setup that is being paid off in this chapter, throughout John's story so far, George has been showing us the Night's Watch in a state of decline. They are low on numbers and resources, the men they do have aren't being used especially well, the powers that be in King's Landing are largely indifferent to their needs, the wall is very difficult to maintain, wildlings and worse are getting bolder beyond the wall. 
L.C. Mormont's Great Ranging, which was supposed to reverse the slow decay of the watch's position, is starting to come off more like an attempt to go down in a blaze of glory. We will see more of that dynamic at the beginning of A Storm of Swords. It's gotten to the point where a first-time reader may well be wondering how the Night's Watch has held (laughs) out this long. How do the Black Crows maintain any imposing presence beyond the wall with these weaknesses? Well, just as we saw Barristan trying to keep the dying flame of the white-cloaked Kingsguard alive in Book 1, so we have the black-cloaked Shadow Tower crew in Book 2, exemplifying the remaining strength of the Night's Watch. Corrin Halfhand and his men are so different from the likes of Alistair Thorne and Thorin Smallwood that they seem to belong to a different organization entirely, in terms of individual competence, collective action, and their overall perspectives on themselves, the territory, and the enemy. Whereas those previous officers embodied arrogance, John's new mentors embody earned confidence, and those are two very different things. Thorne and Smallwood proudly flaunt their ignorance, their refusal to consider how people different from them might contribute to the whole. Corn and company soak in information of all kinds, and then act on it with precision, where the bullies blunder and bluster their way into disaster. Rather than exalting sword fighting above all else, as Thorne did at Castle Black, these men each specialize in a different area to act efficiently in the wild. Rather than carelessly dismiss the wildlings in a bigoted fashion as Smallwood did, they learn from the wildlings on an even playing field. That's not to say these are wholly admirable men. They unflinchingly torture their enemies. Nor is it to say their strategies and tactics prove unimpeachable. They do end up cornered and picked off one by one. But even in the face of failure, they hold on to their skills and their worldviews. This not only allows them peace of mind in the face of death, It winds up preserving John's life so he can join the Wildlings as a spy. Rather than censoring their egos, these men think of themselves as part of a whole and act accordingly. This reflects John's own maturation process. He is seeing a different way of being a man and a member of the Night's Watch. Some of their ways he absorbs, others he rejects. Both are crucial into shaping him into a different person from the one who set out from the Wall. Yeah, and Korn and his band of five, there's only five dudes that are up here. It reminds me of a U.S. Army Special Forces A-team, otherwise known as the Green Berets. Of course, I mean the hit 80s TV show that you all remember. In real life, though, eight teams are set up with each member of a team possessing a specialized skill set to win in any potential confrontation or battle they'll, they'll encounter. And historically, Green Berets were expected to integrate into a local culture and learn from the locals in order to win. And that's kind of how Korn and his team seems to operate here north of the Wall. And I was thinking about this too, you know, John has always wanted a sense of belonging of people who embrace him as one of their own. Being with Corrin, this seems like this is the spot where John thought that joining the Night's Watch, this this is where basically what John thought that joining the Night's Watch would be like, a true brotherhood, but he would be accepted for his skill sets and he would be alongside of true brothers of the Night's Watch. John's journey in the Night's Watch thus far has really not been that way. As you were saying, there are plenty of bad rangers like Thorne, Smallwood, and Sir Alistair Thorne. Plenty of poor leaders in high leadership positions like the short-sighted Bowen Marshes of the world. And But for the moment, John has finally found a band of warriors who fulfill the idealized imagery of the Night's Watch that he grew up hearing from Ned and Benjen and the songs and stories that singers brought to Winterfell. And I think it's interesting, too, because... 
you know, John has been set up that potentially like he's been hearing these songs and stories about the Night's Watch. And so you might think that as he joins up with Korn and hearing more songs about this guy as we were recounting him in A Clash of Kings, you might think this is going to be more smoke with no fire. But the reality is that it actually proves to be fire and that Korn is both fire, you know, in the metaphorical sense, but also fire <laughs> in terms of actually being worth a damn as a Night's Watchman. And to accompany that as shift in John's understanding of the Night's Watch, we have a shift in setting from the Fist of the First Men to the Skirling Pass, which is a series of passes, really, through the harsh and inimical Frostfang Mountains. As John's journey beyond the Wall has proceeded northward, every step has gotten both larger, more physically imposing, and also more distant from life as he previously knew it. He's gone from a village to a single homestead to a fort to wild nature. From a flatlands to a hill to a mountain range. We are not in Kansas anymore. The Frostfangs in particular feel alien to John. You can see that in part through the lens of the Night's Watch as a border force in enemy territory. John is a new recruit crossing the DMZ for the first time to find a new world. But it's also because nobody lives under up here under normal circumstances. In that light, the Frostfangs are more like are, are less like an active war zone and more like Iceland or the surface of the moon. This is a land that time forgot, an oasis of undisturbed nature carrying on its cycles, away from the tumultuous rises and falls of mankind. On one hand, it's unforgiving. Humans just aren't meant to stay up here for long. If you don't starve, you'll freeze or fall to your death. On the other, as John soon learns, these mountains are also incredibly gorgeous, precisely because mankind has not disturbed any of it. He sees crystalline light glinting off waterfalls so thin they look like they could cut skin. He stumbles upon a meadow overflowing with colorful flowers. The deep ravines are awe-inspiring as well as treacherous. John describes seeing a shadow cat flow like liquid hunting a ram, and compares it to himself fighting the wildlings. It's as though the watchmen have become integrated into the ballet of nature around them. It's fitting for a chapter that's all about concealment and camouflage. We're part of this world. But simply by coming here... The Watchmen have disturbed all this beauty. It's the observer paradox inherent to, inherent to art and science and empathy. Your presence inherently transforms whatever it is you're looking at. That's how they find the wildlings, whose presence is given away by fire, breaking the concealment and camouflage. The wildlings are, are looking out, but the Watch is watching back. The wildlings have been seen seeing. All this focus on observation and analysis primes the reader to enjoy this chapter on a purely visual level. The pop of fire on the mountain, moonlight dazzling around the rim of every rock, Egret's red hair, the blue flower of the Bale of the Bard story. A Clash of Kings is about uh, explosions of color, as I've said a few times before, and I think this chapter is the prime example of that for John. Agreed. And you describe the Frostfangs like Iceland, and that's where John and Sam's story from seasons two and three of Game of Thrones was filmed. Also, Stephen Seven's uh, Beyond Those Wall storyline, that masterpiece of a story. And even though we... I have a lot of criticism about John's story from season two, especially I do think that they got the setting really, really right by mirroring it to what George describes in A Clash of Kings, because this does feel like an alien world, like being on the surface of a moon. But who among us hasn't stared up at the moon on a cold night and seen it silvered against the night sky and found beauty in it? And who among us also hasn't looked up at that moon and also felt lonely too? Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Still, the fact that the wildlings are up here in the Frostfangs has to give first-time readers pause. This is really hostile, remote terrain. What would drive the wildlings up into the mountains? What is man searching for? Now, rereaders know that they're looking for the Horn of Joram and they end up opening giant's tombs, as we'll find out in A Storm of Swords. 
But about that hostile train, because I'm going to get on a Spielberg kick here towards the end of the episode, what it looks like George is doing is taking the hostile train of the Egyptian desert from the Nazi dig site from Raiders of the Lost Ark and inverting the color scheme and temperature, and also taking the Nazis and the French out and replacing them with sympathetic figures, namely the wildlings. For sure. It's that same pulp pleasure of, a, of an Indiana Jones story, but you know, with a, a little more moral weight, some of the, you know, a, a later Spielberg picture more in terms of the, the kind of the moral <laughs> complexity that George is going for. But all this, all this character and world building work is folded deftly into the background. It's a sedimentary layer under the surface. John 6 is so arresting and memorable because of how it focuses on a concrete goal to be accomplished. It's so clean, thought into action. The opening words don't waste any time. They introduce the problem. They could see the fire in the night, glimmering against the side of the mountain like a falling star. George then introduces our new characters, not through personality-laden monologues, nor by John thinking at length about meeting them. Instead, George introduces them through the lens of the problem. They efficiently offer perspectives, implications, and finally a solution. George is writing the way Corrin and his boys think, focus so intense that it breaks through realism and becomes its own kind of enchantment. This, I can only imagine, is what it feels like when a combat unit is working smoothly in cooperation with one another, as though one cohesive mind. Yeah, that's right. They talk about it being a unit. You're not just an individual soldier. You operate within a, a unit in the army. And again, to bring it back to the A-team, the Green Beret concept, you know, Corrin's band gives their inputs on what they should do. And the plan is built organically with all of these inputs. And they make a team decision with Corrin having kind of the final input. That's how actual Green Beret teams operate in real life, with everyone giving inputs and the team commander operating in a kind of a first among equals role, which is similar to what Korn is doing with his, his soldiers here. Team guys are also always addressing each other by their first names or nicknames. It's endearing to get outside of the Sir Sergeant Chief mentality that we see in the regular army. And once you know it, but that's how these guys operate with Dalbridge only being called Squire Dalbridge as a nickname and Korn later rejecting John, calling him a lord in, in John's final chapter. But to move away from all of my own navel-gazing nostalgia and towards the narrative itself, this really has a lot of character ramifications for John. You know, guys on, on team don't go by their first names because it's cool to do to go against the grain of standard military culture. Instead, it establishes intimacy, familiarity, and community. And that same principle works for Korn and his band. John's now part of the team, has community and a place in it, and these men are familiar with him. John's always, throughout his arc, is always looking for a home, for meaning, and even a small thing like how he's being addressed by name and how his input is being valued just gives it that sense of community among these Night's Watchmen. And so it makes John feel good about himself, and it also allows for John to be a part of this Night's Watch A-team. And George wants his writing to reflect John's kind of excitement and immersion. Form meets content. Indulgence means death in the Frost Fangs, so the writing cuts away all indulgence. The excitement comes from not only the tension of what's happening, but the crispness of the writing to match it. First, we meet Squire Dalbridge, perfectly sketched out in a handful of words. His nickname is both mockery and tribute, in a way like a lot of, I think, those affectionate in-group nicknames are. On one hand, it's a reflection he never rose any higher, kind of making fun of an old man by saying he never improved on his youth. On the other, it's an acknowledgement of a life outside the watch, one he can still remember and take pride in. It's a subtle reminder that, in its ideal form, the watch serves the realm, through the synecdoche of a just king, and they are all his servants, his squires. For Squire Dalbridge, there is a continuity between the life he used to live and the life he lives now, which is something, as you say, that John is always trying to achieve. Indeed, Dalbridge's dialogue focuses on one of the more just kings in the series, Mance Raider. 
Those eyes up on the mountain are his eyes, truly, serving him as Dalbridge once served a king and now serves the realm. Dalbridge draws John and the reader's focus to the important question. Why are they there? Who are they watching for? What does Mance fear? Dalbridge does not make his true question explicit because he doesn't have to. These men know one another just so well that they can speak almost telepathically, communicating with spare phrases like icebergs, knowing that the real meaning is going to get across. What Dalbridge is implying is that the wildlings might not be keeping watch for the crows at all, but for the White Walkers. Eben counters that Mance would flay the poor bastards if he knew they lit a fire. So this draws our attention, and John's, to the question of why they lit the fire. These experienced military thinkers are always searching out the mysterious elements to resolve. Dalbridge and Eben differ on Mance's involvement. Did he give the order for the fire, as Dalbridge says, thinking, oh, this is about what Mance fears? Or didn't he, as Eben suggests? Mance is built up in A Clash of Kings, like Stannis was in A Game of Thrones. He's an off-screen presence given form in our minds through his reputation. We've been following Mance's trail beyond the wall, struggling to make sense of his movements, and this gamesmanship will extend to the man himself in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons. He is a deceptive trickster, always wearing a mask. Corin resolves the dialectic precisely by accepting the mystery. Fire is life up here, but it can be death as well. Mance might have ordered this fire to protect against the others, or it might have been an improvisation of the men on the scene. Could have been. Either or. Fire is both life and death for the wildlings, as Corrin says. And to be honest, doesn't this kind of feel like these wildlings just got hit by a bus driven by Corrin halfhand here? That really feels that way to me. As we're going to get into it, George immediately frames the wildlings as brave through the one guy who goes for his horn rather than his dirk, and he grit telling the story of Bale the Bar thereafter. The wildlings are immediately human and not other, and this is supposed to contrast with what John has experienced with Craster as he seemed more beast than man. Like you were saying, the wildlings probably expected the others more than they expected any rangers from the Fist of the First Men. So they chose the safer route in their minds that the others and the whites would come for them rather than their traditional, in quotation marks, enemy, the Night's Watch. Meanwhile, Corrin orders no fires lit because he judges that the wildlings are the greater danger than the others and their dead servants. That kind of reads to me like the wildlings are a bit ideologically beyond where the Night's Watch is at, which makes sense given that they've known about the Others and Whites before Waymer Rice, Will, and Garrett ran into them, and of course before Arthur and Jafer Flowers come south of the Wall. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a great subtle implicit contrast that will become explicit once John meets Mance himself and learns what they're up to. Regardless, this fire now means life for the Watchmen and death for the Wildlings. That is what the team can and must act upon. The Wildlings will have a horn. A horn they must not blow, as the Watchmen say. This is their task, and this is the justification for spilling the blood of their fellow man. After all, Mance is also looking for the Horn of Winter, a horn they also must not blow. Even in the face of the White Walkers, the threat alluded to here coming for them all, man's war against man threatens to devour us one by one. It's a long climb, and also a long fall, as Corrin says. His dialogue is always reinforcing duality, life within death, ascent within descent. They risk everything with the fate of the world on their shoulders. But in the end, all they can do is live as long as they can, and then inevitably die. They are devoted to their cause at an almost sacred level, like samurai. You can feel John struggling to keep up throughout this chapter, trying not only to act and talk like these men, but think like them too. In book one, the big revelation for John was about the weaknesses of the Watch and how he had to temper his ego to improve upon them. Now, John suddenly has to deal with Watchmen who are leagues beyond him. This is a different kind of challenge, and the environment matches it. 
The Frostfangs demand that you transform or die. Keep up or be left behind. These men were shaped into this unit by such an environment. Can John do it? Is he a bad enough dude to rescue Westeros? <laughs> yes, he is. John repeatedly proves himself up to the job throughout this chapter. His opening thoughts in the chapter smoothly slot into the dialogue. Half a mile ahead and 2,000 feet up, John judged, and perfectly placed to see anything moving in the pass below. He then thinks about how Corrin had risked no fire since they got into the mountains, you know, unlike the, what the wildlings had done. As Corrin will say, this, they have more discipline. Instead, they draw heat from each other, again, as a community, almost like a hive mind. John compares it to his brothers at Winterfell. That's a revealing comparison. At the end of book one, John decided that the Night's Watch was his family now, his brothers, in truth. He hasn't really felt much of that beyond the wall, though. Not until now. Throughout the chapter, comparisons to his Stark family keep coming up. John is once more being asked to choose, as he is throughout his story, which community he will belong to in the end. What can he be a part of? He puts himself forward to be a part of this. Corrin asks for two men to climb the mountain and deal with the Watchers. One has to be Stone Snake. He has his specialized skills for just such a problem. John steps up to be the other. Corrin just looks at him, <laughs> and we get a comedy silence beat. Ultimately, Corrin decides that he can trust John to get the job done, which will have significant ripple effects going forward. I mean, in a story where John is constantly having new father figures, and by story, I mean all of A Song of Ice and Fire, this does feel like a spot where another of John's father figures does the fatherly thing and takes the train wheels off of John's bike. That bike being, I guess, the climb up the mountain and John entering adulthood. Either or, the metaphor works. It's almost like a, a test for John. Can he live up to the promise of his namesake and live up to the promise of all of the training that he's had? Of course, John is a formidable man grown in his own right, being both trained by Sir Roderick Cressel and armed with Gior Mormont's Valyrian steel sword. So John has all the requisite mental and physical tools to get the job done. And now Corn is allowing John to be tested as a man of the Night's Watch. But when Corrin says, yes, go, John, I, I couldn't help but feel an emotion. John's dad was doing that coming-of-age hero thing with John. It's all John ever wanted. That said, the emotion has to be balanced against the fact that John is going into battle. He's going to shed blood here. And this test that Corrin gives him is just the first test that Corrin is going to apply to John. It's also the easiest test. It's not going to be the last test. The last test is going to be really hard for John. The tests just keep coming one by one. Corrin does insist that John leave Ghost behind. And Ghost's presence could have changed the fight on top of the mountain considerably. On a more figurative level, John is being forced to leave behind the wolf that connects him to home and family. He is striking out into new territory. He will once again part from Ghost while going back over the wall. Stone Snake wants to set out immediately. Again, not a single second or word can be wasted. They set off into the night, described beautifully by George as an interplay of blacks and whites, a chiaroscuro effect. So soon after the House of the Undying, we are back to the doors of Ebony and Ivory, the doors of perception that Egret will soon challenge in John's case. These are uh, moral extremes, slipping around each other, as well as the forces of ice and fire. The sun's reflected light versus the shadow of the mountain. The light crowns the mountain, where the fire sits. The watchmen move in black shadows wearing black cloaks, opposites coming together. And George keeps that theme going by reminding us about John's mother. The mountain is his mother now, his mentors tell him, like the mother of mountains in Daenerys' story. John is being reborn, broken down to his most basic, most basic instincts of survival to be remade in a new image. All he can do is keep going and not look down. If I look back, I am lost. Trust your mother. Trust your new fathers. 
you'll make it through the night. Our hearts are in our throats reading this, knowing that a slightest misstep will send John tumbling. And yet the release, getting to the top, only brings us to bloodshed. Right, and George loves to use that climbing as both literal climbing in this case, but also as a metaphor too. Because part of what I like about this climb is that this is the first real climb that John makes, and he does it alongside a fellow ranger in the form of Stone Snake. He's ascending into the unknown and coming into greater contact with an unknown culture. Yes, John journeyed through the haunted forest to reach Craster, but the woods were familiar to John at some level, and Craster is a horrifying outlier to most of the wildlings. But now John is ascending to new heights to meet this new culture. Come a storm of swords, John, now posing as a wildling, is going to make yet another climb when he climbs the wall back into friendly, familiar territory with someone we're just about to meet. Yes. So John and Stone Snake complete their climb and look down on the men they must kill. John has only ever killed a dead man up to this point, remember? This is the first time he kills the living, and it's not a spontaneous moment of self-defense. It is calculated. Each of them pick a victim. Now, of course, there is a clear military justification for this. John and Stone Snake are not sadists killing for the pleasure of it like Ramsay. But it is unquestionably a threshold being crossed. John will be a different person on the other side of it, and he feels that change in progress. It's the forces of discipline and independence, fighting and feeding off each other throughout the chapter. Night's Watch discipline got John this far. But will it avail him against Egret, the avatar of independent individuality? After all, Egret's presence speaks to the limits of Corrin's absolute discipline. She is, a, she is a third watcher, where Corrin said there would be two. No plan survives contact with the enemy. Corrin is an accomplished strategist, a wizard with military intelligence. But his prediction that there would be two watchers was just that, a prediction, and it turned out wrong. I love that. The character who will lure John away from discipline leads to a breakdown of discipline just by being here, before doing anything. As always, when John faces a crisis moment, he thinks about his family. He's wondering how it felt uh, when Rob killed his first man. Well, we don't know that because Rob's not a POV. We saw Rob's first battle through Catalan's eyes, imagery from a distance. John has no such detachment. Stone Snake leads him forward. Combat itself seems to pass in a heartbeat for John. The expectation and the aftermath drag on forever. The event itself is over in an instant. You scale that up, and that's how the veterans of Robert's Rebellion feel about that war. You know, when I first read A Song of Ice and Fire, I was absolutely convinced that George R. Martin had combat experience under his belt as the battles and individual fights felt real to me. And this was in 2012, and I was about a year and a half off of my first and only deployment. I felt these scenes very vividly. Come to find out, George R. R. Martin did not have any combat experience under his belt. He just happens to be a really good writer. Who knew? Combat in and of itself is fast and it's instinctive. We used to call it muscle memory, defined as practicing a task until it becomes more reflex than active action. In other words, train like you fight. John acts with instinct in this fight, dodging from the burning brand, charging into Aurel, knocking him over, and then finishing him with the sword. Then the sword spins away after he uses it, and John immediately reaches for his dirk to take on the last wildling, man. This is John's training under a master at arms coming into focus. Ryder Cassell would be so proud of John and Simone, I have to imagine, even though blood is being shed. So I guess it would be sad and pride at the same time. It's the Song of Ice and Fire, basically, is what's happening. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing. But I think that, that John is proving himself both to Korn and his band here and also living up to his promise. It, it seems, again, I've never experienced it. It seems almost like a form of time travel, almost the way your brain kind of moves before, during, and after this, this kind of fight. John says that afterward, he could admire the courage of the wildling who went for his horn instead of his blade. And this really stood out to me on reread. First of all, this is George giving away the ending of the battle. 
we know there's an afterward. Oh, we know John wins. So the focus shifts from the suspense of combat to John's perspective on the wildlings. Secondly, this makes for an interesting contrast with Theon 4, in which John said that a man about to die wouldn't possibly sound the alarm on his horn. Theon was discounting the possibility of heroic selflessness, of heroic selflessness, an individual giving themselves up for the sake of their community. Of course Theon dismissed that. His old way Ironborn never seemed to behave that way. But this unnamed wildling did. He went for the horn to warn his people, rather than the sword to defend himself. It didn't work, but it's really admirable. And remember how, like, how we were talking back in the earlier Theon chapters about how the Ironborn puffed their chests about how shitty their lives and lots were, and boy, did that give them an identity as raiders and reapers. A really bad fucking identity. Corrin and his party and the wildling watchmen are out in the middle of nowhere eating bad food, not sleeping much, and in danger, and they are living and dying for each other. Again, John talks about how when he was sleeping with Corrin, it reminds him of his family. He is basically being accepted into a new family here. That's in contrast to the Ironborn, where the material lack has created an island of assholes who loot the bodies of dying comrades that we saw back in Theon 3, who value their own individual safety over that of their comrades. It's that it's an interplay between, you know, group incentives and individual decisions that, you know, makes unpacking culture really difficult. But it's coming together in these contact points. John is not only admiring the enemy, but he's admiring them for something that defies stereotypes. Corin will tell John that the wildlings are all in it for themselves. That's their big weakness. But this hornblower suggests otherwise. He wasn't in it for himself. He was willing to go down for his people. This is crucial for John's empathy for the wildlings, a huge part of his story, but all of that is in the future. In the present, they are at war. He cuts down Orel, guaranteeing himself an enemy that will persist beyond the grave, the opposite of John's growing empathy. John turns to the third wildling, and the rush of battle comes to a shrieking halt. His hand freezes along with his brain. The third wildling is a woman. But, as Stone Snake says, she's also a wildling, a watcher. This is a profound culture clash at work. From John's perspective, women are non-combatants to be extended mercy. Killing her would be an atrocity. That, however, is a cultural logic that does not apply to Egret. If it did, she wouldn't be here in the first place. She is a soldier like the rest. John's merciful instinct, while speaking to his kind heart, can be seen as ignorant or even condescending. Why should she be treated differently? I'm not saying John should slit Egret's throat to stay woke, to be clear. I'm saying John <laughs> is John is entering foreign territory, figuratively as well as literally. In this foreign territory, Egret's gender does not prevent her from taking part in war, as Stone Snake points out. She is a spearwife. She was reaching for an axe when John attacked, and if he'd been a few seconds slower, she would have killed him with it. The wildlings do not think about women the way the people of Winterfell do. John must incorporate that into his evolving mindset as he matures. And just before Clash of Kings was published, George published, of course, The Hedge Knight, which is a, a novella that we will hopefully at some point talk about for our, for our patrons. And part of that, at the end of that story, we hear a portion of the knight's oath that every knight is supposed to take when Raymond Fossaway is knighted just before Dunk's trial by seven. In the name of the warrior, I charge you to be brave. In the name of the father, I charge you to be just. In the name of the mother, I charge you to defend the young and innocent. In the name of the maid, I charge you to protect all women. So even though Winterfell does not have that knightly tradition that the Reach and the Stormlands and Dorne all have, those same cultural mores exist and they distinguish women as non-combatants in this war. But like you're saying, 
Is that actually the case that women are non-combatants when you have a force such as the others coming to extinguish the life of everyone? They're not just coming for the combatants on the field. They're coming for everyone. These, there's these different moors that you have to confront if you're going to forge a, a coalition against the White Walkers. And, you know, John will eventually be able to understand how the Wildlings look at women differently and understand Egret as a warrior. And yet, the dynamics here irreversibly change because of John's hesitation. Even if he was able to overcome it in the moment, Egret is no longer an active combatant in battle. She is a prisoner at his mercy. She can't fight back. Killing her now simply cannot feel like killing Orel. It feels more like execution, like murder. So once John has instinctively decided to spare her, he feels the conscious need to go on sparing her because the circumstances have changed. A different cultural logic now takes hold. Egret is no longer a non-combatant to be spared, but an enemy soldier held captive. As Stonesnake points out, Corrin never told them to take captives. John countered that Corrin never said not to. This is a weak argument. Corrin didn't think he had to give what would have seemed like an obvious order. Really, John is just buying time. Egret is a helpless woman, and then she's an enemy soldier. Any status that can spare John the task of killing her. Again, it's a pointed contrast to Theon IV from last week. Both John and Theon are transparently jumping between justifications for what they're doing. But Theon was doing so in order to validate his own violence, whereas John is doing so in order to validate an act of mercy, rejecting violence. Because John admires Corn and company, he feels the need to dress up what he has done in military logic. I will interrogate my captive and gain intelligence. This goes hilariously wrong. Egret gives him nothing useful about Mance, nor his numbers, nor his movements, nor his motivations in being up here. And why should she give him anything? He just revealed his soft heart by sparing her, so she knows he's probably not going to torture her. John's looking for a reason to keep her alive, but Stonesnake, experienced in the war against the wildlings, knows better. She'd bite off her tongue first, he says, spiting herself rather than give the hated crows anything to work with. John, on the other hand, tells Egret his name and where he's from. As Stonesnake points out with a chuckle, he appears to have this backwards. <laughs> You're the interrogator, buddy. They're the ones who are supposed to give you information. But John is an open wound, a bleeding heart. Bless him. Once again, it comes back to his family. John asks Egret about Benjen, and she gives him nothing. The fiery defiance in her eyes initially puts him in mind of Arya, the person he loves most in all the world. It's such a strong association that at first he thinks Egret is considerably younger than she is. When he's calmed down, he sees she's a few years older than him. But he still thinks she might be as skinny as Arya under the furs. John is attracted to Egret without realizing it at first, thinking about her body under the furs right after pricking her throat. You know, wink wink. He's gone from nostalgia for the innocence of childhood to the stirring of adult feelings for the woman who will be his first sexual partner. Both of these associations together make killing Egret anathema to John at a level he can't explain, nor probably even fully understand. She is no longer the other, as you were saying, and the only information she does give them is a reminder that both their peoples live in the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Burn those you killed, or the true others will come for us both. That is the seat of empathy across the borders of the war. It's on that foundation that John will start to think of the wildlings as part of his new family, just as much as his brothers in black. They are all part of the great family of humanity. 
And I think that family dynamic is such a strong theme of this chapter. I mean, John starts the chapter off with his new brothers in black, even as he thinks about what Rob was thinking about before his first battle and then wishes he was as brave as Bran was in the climb. And then thinking that Egret reminds him of Arya. Something subtle that I think George does here is put John in the mind state to spare Egret by John first thinking of Rob and Bran, his two redheaded half brothers. This coming on the heels of how Gilly reminded John of Arya, Rob, and Sansa from John 3, as we talked about back then. And then when John has his first brushes with Ygritte as a person, she reminds him of Arya both physically and how skinny she probably is under the furs, wink, wink, but also her ferocity and spark of life reminds John of Arya. John's story has been to emerge from the sheltered cocoon of Winterfell to evolve his perspective on family, friends, and enemies and what is human. That George weaves John's character development through his family is just great storytelling by George, especially when he extends that to Egrit. But George isn't done painting the story of John, that there's more that unites us than divides us. And like we're discovering in our Fever Dream patron episodes, he does this brilliantly through a story within a story. It's on that basis of kinship, literal and otherwise, that Egret reaches out to John via the legend of Baal the Bard, King Beyond the Wall. Even in a chapter full of great scenes, this is the outstanding highlight. As you said on Twitter, there are so many layers at work in this story that it's difficult to take account of them all, even for us here in the Nauticast. It's comparable to the Night of the Laughing Tree story that Mira tells Bran in A Storm of Swords. The parallels run deep. Mira's story directly explores the tragic, capital R, romantic backstory of Robert's Rebellion and R plus L equals J, that Egret's story explores indirectly, through archetype and metaphorical imagery. Both stories are overflowing with lush visuals, dazzling the mind's eye with color and movement, the promise of fantasy brought to life, but both stories undercut their own romanticism by hinting at deeper, uglier realities that leave everything blurred by uncertainty and time. Both stories embody the paradoxical nature of art. It captures reality by pushing beyond it, conveying emotional truth through distortion and artifice. Both stories challenge our male Stark POV, John here, Bran with Mira and the Storm of Swords, to question their own preferences in storytelling and critically examine what they have been told before, and the implications for the reader are along the same lines. And I think that both stories are also Eye of the Beholder's stories, stories spun to fit the ideologies of the people telling them. In The Night of the Laughing Tree, Bran constantly interrupts Mira Reed's telling of the story while John here grows indignant at points of the great story. That never happened. No way. That's not fucking history. That's not the history that I knew. Meanwhile, Stone Snake is there to offer a third perspective to the story. This dialogue between Stone Snake and Egret that sets up the story is just clutch. Well, long before he was king over the free folk, Bale was a great raider. Stone Snake gave a snort. A murderer, robber, and raper is what you mean. That's all in where you're standing to, Grit said. Stosnake is a brave, strong guy, but his ability to understand the story is clouded by his perspective as a sworn enemy of the wildlings. To Stonesnake, Bale the Barb represents everything he detests in the wildlings that he's dedicated his life to fighting against. And because this story has more than a seasoning of R plus L equals J into it, in other words, to Robert Baratheon, Rhaegar Targaryen was a murderer who stole Lyanna Stark and raped her. What's fascinating is that Ygritte doesn't kind of with, no, uh he was a goddamn hero. Instead, she says, yeah, maybe, maybe he was all those things that you're saying, Stonesnake. We come to these stories bringing our own biases into them, but hear the story all the same. 
This is another way that George humanizes the wildlings through Egrid. He's showing us that Egrid is not so narrow-minded as to dismiss the reasons why others wouldn't value Bale the way that she esteems him. In other words, Egret's empathy for different perspectives leads us as readers to empathize with Egret, who acts as our stand-in for the wildlings. And George is only going to consider and George is only going to continue this good work when we meet with Manson Torment in the next book. In order to accomplish all of these goals, both of these stories have to wind up functioning as dense narrative wells, gravity pulling everything else in. The Night of the Laughing Tree story is a story about Liana and Rhaegar. And also the politics of Ares's realm, and the spectacle of court life, and the dynamics of the earlier Stark generation, and also a hero's journey for Helen Reed, and on and on. The Bale the Bard story, in this chapter, is in Egret's telling a story about how the Starks of Winterfell are distant kin to the Free Folk. But it's also another story about Rhaegar and Lyanna. Rhaegar, too, was a royal bard who made off with the daughter of Winterfell leaving behind only a son who will one day rule the castle, if John indeed is crowned as king in the north in the Winds of Winter. It's also a story about Mance Raider, the current king bay on the wall. He, too, is a bard king who strolled into Winterfell in disguise, not once but twice. It is the second time, in a dance with dragons, that he tries to make off with a daughter of House Stark, or a girl disguised as one anyway, Jane Poole. The Wheel of Time Keeps Turning. The events of the past and future echo, with the individual components changed around each time. You are part of a pattern without realizing it, carrying on with no beginning nor ending. Death functions as the hard limit, a straight line cutting across the wheel. Art functions as our attempt to achieve some form of immortality. For all Bale's romanticism, his story is a tragedy. His son kills him without knowing it, because the political boundaries that divide John and Egret in the present day held fast in the past. Something these cultures have in common, however, is a hatred of kin slaying, and Bale's son suffered for it. He was overthrown by a rebel lord who skinned him for a cloak. Here we have yet another layer to the story. It's foreshadowing of the Bolton betrayal coming up. They haven't rose up against the Starks in a long time, but the memory of when they did is preserved in art, an archetype in a distorted mirror. John is receiving a warning of Rob's fate from a most unlikely source, but neither of them know it for what it is, just as Danny couldn't interpret the warning of the Red Wedding she saw in the House of the Undying. We might like to think of culture as transmitting itself in nice little boxes from generation to generation, but this is how it actually works. Fragments in a whirlwind, like assembling a dinosaur from bits and pieces of fossils. I love that. So that's a great way of putting it. And we're also seeing the reverberations across the spiritual ether from the house of the undying with the blue into rose imagery showing up in Bale's story as it showed up in Danny's vision. And here, John resembles Danny in not really understanding that he is the blue into rose of the story. He is the child of the daughter of Winterfell stolen away. It makes perfect sense why John wouldn't see himself in the story. He conditions himself several times to think of himself that he never knew his mother, but his father sure was Ned Stark, right? Right? No. Uh, I mean, he wishes. He wishes at this point, right? <laughs> I mean, John and Egret are, are, are clearly on uh, the opposite sides of a line. But what is that line exactly? What is it that separates them? Like the Skirling Pass, it's made up of a thousand tiny lines. Amidst all that confusion, there are slippage points that allow you to make contact. Things you somehow have in common, if only in the story. 
The content of the story itself speaks to the possibilities and pitfalls of crossing the borders that now lie between John and Eager. That's what the story of Bale the Bard and his, his Stark Bride is about. And the form of the story also speaks to that. Eager has to explain the in-joke of Bale's pseudonym to John, who doesn't speak the old tongue, so he's not going to get the joke. Similarly, Mance's pseudonym, Abel, that he uses in Winterfell, that's a reference to Bale, which Theon doesn't understand. All these footnotes that wither in the perspective of another who doesn't pick up on it. So language is both the bridge and the boundary. Language is how you cross these gaps, but language also kind of makes up the gap. John intervenes with his own cultural history, also tied to names and language. Wait a minute, which Brandon was this, whose daughter Bale kidnapped? Which one? John asks this, asks this because, like Bran, down in the crypts in book one, he knows all the names, he knows all the Brandons, he knows the histories, the stories, the official canon. But Egret isn't taking part in the official canon. Rather, she is exploring its underside, the preterite proletarian arts of folk stories and unofficial history. This was Brandon the Daughterless, she says, which is to say, this is the Brandon who serves the purpose of this story, which is to be daughterless. Which Brandon it was, if indeed it was a Brandon, is beside the point. Egret is not trying to tell a story that fits into John's understanding, but challenges it, opening up his self-image to include her and her stories. And even though John might be familiar with the Starks from the crypts that he was exposed to, we should also remember that there were deeper layers within the Winterfell crypts that contained Starks from ancient, ancient times. Beyond that, the Boltons allegedly skinned this Stark, Brandon that is, so his body may have never been laid to rest within the crypt of Winterfell. I mean, I like to think in a positive sense that the Red Kings, when they finally bent the knee to the Starks, that the Starks were able to get the remains of their dead men out of the Dreadfort, provided that they were, you know still there in some capacity. Beyond that, Brandon Stark, the, Brandon Stark the Daughterless gets into something else when it comes to history. How the official histories sometimes don't relate the shortcomings and failures of the royal line. We covered this in our, in our Patreon Fever Dream podcast when we unpack chapter 13, where we start to reveal some things about this, the character of Joshua York. And there we talked about the Assyrian king Sennacherib and the Lachish relief, which Sennacherib had done up recounting his conquest of Judah. That story ends, that story on the relief ends with Sennacherib shutting the Judean king Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage at Jerusalem without quite finishing the story, story, namely that the Assyrians attempted to take Jerusalem and that likely resulted in failure. The Starks may not want to remember a Brandon Stark who kinslayed and then was subsequently killed by a Bolton king. History, when used as heritage, is a weapon to wield, and the propaganda aspect of it can ensure that the Stark legacy lives on by not remembering Brandon the Daughterless. Just kind of airbrush him out of the way. Now, please note that I'm not subscribing to the histories written by the victors because that's poor historiography, but I do think that there can be a... What is emphasized in history can result in this guy being essentially airbrushed out of the official story because you don't want to have a kinslayer, a guy who was beaten by the Boltons. And of course, as I was saying, the kinslaying portion, I'll just emphasize it again, because he killed his own father, which is just the worst crime he could possibly commit in Westeros. And the, the present is always changing the past, and we always kind of make the future out of our own understanding of that. And speaking of Brandon, all these Brandons, this is yet another parallel to Theon IV last week, because Bran is hiding out in the crypts in that chapter, just as Bale does in Egret's story. Once more, George is challenging the reader along similar lines, to notice parallels, archetypes cropping up, and to understand their purpose. What matters is not only the story, the structure, but how it's being told, by whom, and why. John says, Egret says that whether or not the story is true, 
She remembers it because her mother used to sing it to her, and she was some woman, like John's. The point is less the literal kinship within the story, and more the symbolic kinship that the story itself creates. The bard's truth, not the historical truth. What Egret is trying to get across to John, as they both say, is that it's all in where you're standing. They, they're all Southerners to Egret, which confounds John because he's used to thinking of himself as Northern. That identity permeates his entire life. Remember Elsie Mormont and his peculiarities about wine dismissing lemon as some <laughs> Southron heresy? But to Egret, they're all lumped in together as Southerners, just as John lumps together many different cultures as wildlings, just as the Dothraki called Jorah an Andal, even though he's not one. It's all about perspective. This isn't moral relativism in the easily caricatured sense of all acts being equal and everything coming out of wash. It's more that the bard's truth, far from being a pale imitation, is usually the only truth we can access. Crossing this bridge doesn't resolve the divides between John and Egret. Those divides still break them apart and ultimately claim her life. But within the space of a song, a story, the bard's truth can hold and bring them together, allowing John to see himself through another's eyes. Yeah, and in wildling culture as well as real-world pre-literate cultures, the stories and songs told around a campfire were often the only forms of preserving historical memory. Even famous Greek philosophers like Socrates famously thought writing down stories was trash because they diminish the impact and effect of the stories and of the teachings because it hinders people's willingness to remember them. Now, these stories and oral traditions were not the happening truth, to borrow again from Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. They were the story truth, not a blow-by-blow blow account of things that happen, but an emotionally resonant story that can be as true or truer than the verifiable fact from the quill of a maester. And what makes the story of Bale the Bard a true account for John is that he is starting to see beyond his own limiting perspective as brought on by the constraints of written history. Moreover, as you were saying, Bale the Bard humanizes the wildlings to John. They're no longer the other. They're people, and they tie into the story of Winterfell as much as the Starks do. Come Storm, and especially A Dance with Dragons, John will see beyond his southern perspective and embrace a universalist perspective on the wildlings as people. They weren't savages or fairytale monsters that old Nan had talked about. They were part of a, a culture. They were the free folk. They were people. They were good. They were bad. They were Mance, Raider, Regret, Torment, Giant's Bane. They were also Craster, the Weeper, and Varabir Sixskins. Are we so different? That's what the Bale of the Bard story forces John to consider. And we can thank Ygrid as this starts the path forward for John to gain perspective, growth, and truly assume the role of being the hero the realm needs. It's an act of startling empathy he didn't expect in this situation that forces him to, to reconsider everything and forces to, him to reconsider how he's going to relate to his mentors who are not going to be especially pleased with what he's done. Dawn breaks. The Black Knight that both hid the Watchmen and made their climb treacherous is replaced by the light in which we must face ourselves and each other. John must accept the consequences of his actions. He climbed up and away from his black-cloaked mentor and his white wolf, the symbols of duty and family, into uncharted territory. But the dawn brings corn and ghost with it. John roughhouses with ghost. This is an intimacy he has achieved across multiple borders. Egret is freaked out. Why is that? After all, she is presumably more familiar with direwolves than Southron folks. What throws her off is the love. As Corrin and his men will realize in John's next chapter, the bond between John and Ghost can't be explained purely as a boy and his dog. There is magic at work. This demonstrates that John has already, without knowing it, taken a step into the literal and figurative wild Egret was telling him about. 
She said that they were kin, more alike than he knew. It turns out John already had more of the wild in him than even Egret knew. The borders keep blurring. Again, we see here how effectively and efficiently these Night's Watchmen communicate. All Stone Snake has to say to Corrin is, there were three. And all Eben has to say is that they passed the crow food remains of the first two. That implies what he wants done with Egret without him having to say it. All John can say is that she yielded. Which is true, but what he doesn't say is that he hesitated to kill her first, dragging the, world the word yield out of her. In response, Corrin speaks to not only the material realities at hand, but how they inform the chapter's themes of origins and identity. Do you know who I am? That's what he asks Egret. And that's the question of the chapter. Does John know who he is? Well, relative to who? To Egret? To these watchmen? To the Starks? Corrin engages Egret in dialogue, give and take, to more precisely fix the borders between them that John seems to have confused. Corrin makes Egret say his name back to him, affirming not only his identity, but his reputation, who he is in the eye of the beholder, the stories about him. Corrin puts himself in her position, the keystone act of empathy across borders, yet he is doing so ultimately to reinforce those borders to John. If I was in your shoes, a captive of the wildlings, what would you do to me? And with a soldier's respect for a fellow soldier, Egret tells him the truth. We would torture you to death. Eben, as we have already heard, is the torturer of this gang. This is how both sides have descended in a slow burn conflict that is considerably older than the War of Five Kings. John's mercy is logistically inadequate, as the older men gently explained to him. They can't feed her, they can't guard her, and all it takes is her crying out at the wrong moment to give them away and get them all killed. This is, you know, what John said the same about Gilly earlier in this book. We can't, you just can't do this. There's no way to make this work. Corrin's invocation of the larger war, though, and what they've all done as part of it, also makes John's mercy feel so small in comparison to both sides just torturing each other. What can man do against such reckless hate? John can only repeat himself. She yielded to me. Her life is my responsibility, and I could not bring myself to take it. The responsibility remains his, as Corin says, and none of them can take it away from him as he desperately wants them to do. That's the last gasp of childhood, the belief that your parents can wave away consequences. Our hero must now put his origins and identity into action, as Corin says. You are the blood of Winterfell and a man of the night's watch. The choice is yours. Live with it. They ride off into the sun and leave him alone with her. And isn't it beautiful, like, the way that George, like, puts that, how they're, like, right off and, like, the sun is, like, rising as they're pushing forward. It's almost like an old Western sort of way that George describes that, that, that scene. And I think it's interesting that we have John here being left alone in order to do the deed with, with Egret one way or the other. Corrin is later going to talk to, to John and be like, John's going to say that he, he let her live. And Corrin's like, yeah, that's fine. And John's like, wait, what? You, that, that you're fine with that? And John's, and Corrin's perspective is that he wanted to get a better sense of who John was as a person one way or the other. The other aspect too about this, about them riding away, is that it leaves John with the sole individual responsibility and it also doesn't allow prying eyes in order to see what he could possibly do. And I want to 
contrast that with what happens with John and the old man at Queen's Crown. There's a couple differences there. The one, the one major one is that, of course, the old man is not a combatant the way that he grit is. But they're all. But the similarity though is is that they're both captives of John. They're both captives of the wild. Well, the wildlings in the case of Queen's Crown, the Night's Watchman here. But the problem is that there, John doesn't have the ability to conduct his execution of the man in secret, away from everyone else besides himself and Ghost. He has to do it with other people around him. He can't flinch away from the decision. Now, of course, what ends up happening is that he is rescued by Ygritte in that circumstance from having to commit that execution, and then is later uh, later rescued by, I was about to say Grey Wind, but by Summer, who, of course, rescues John from being around the Wildlings who now want to kill him because they now recognize that he is a, a turn cloak on them. So I think we're seeing, as I was talking about before in my introduction, introductory comments that we're seeing a escalating sense of the conflicts and moral quandaries that George is facing. So this execution of prisoners is not the last time that John is going to face this moral quandary. And next time it's going to be even harder than this time here. I love that sense of these these agonized almost executions being like the the bookends, the brackets for John and Egret's relationship. That's how it starts. And that's the last moment they spend together before her death at Castle Black. So it all comes full circle. And in, in this moment, Egret, characteristically blunt, gets to the heart of it. He never killed a woman before, huh? In truth, before last night, he'd never killed anyone, just as he never slept with anyone before her. He climbs a lot of steps with Egret, Jon Snow does, both for killing and for fucking. Egret tells her that we all die the same, something else we have in common. Speaking of which, hey, why don't we just run off to Mance? Mance is a temptation figure for Jon in multiple respects, showing him a fluid self-image that can negotiate all these bewildering boundaries. Here, joining Mance means that John wouldn't have to kill Egret, wouldn't have to make this call, and so own his identity. But he resists this temptation, precisely on the terms of identity. I am a crow, just like them. John asks Egret if she's afraid. Again, the empathy he cannot deny, cannot just regiment like the rest of the men. Egret said she was afraid, but then the sun rose. And what's more human than that? Even death is easier to face when the sun is shining. The world will keep turning without me, and that's okay. In the face of that strength, that grace, John mentally summons up his father. Longclaw is not ice as he thinks, but it's what he has. His father would give her a clean death, wouldn't he? I'm his son, aren't I? Who am I? Jon Snow has crossed the threshold into the unknown, and found out that it's uncannily similar to everything he left behind, just reordered, remixed. He said he never expected to find his mother in the Frostfangs, but of course he did. He carries her with him wherever he goes. Arya and Rob and all the rest will always haunt the faces of others, like the memories in candlelight Catelyn glimpsed on the faces of the gods. You can't take back empathy any more than you can take back the hesitation to kill. Egret's essential humanity the bard's truth kinship of which she spoke has inflamed the conflict in John's human heart. Art has enlightened him, made him see, and he cannot unsee his family in her. So he lets her go. An act of mercy that stands in defiant contrast to Theon's choice to reject mercy at the end of his chapter last week. Theon chose fear, hating his own incomplete nature so much he purged his own humanity. John steps outside the constricting logic of family, duty, honor, to confront another individual like him, a suffering soul from a fallen world, in need. 
Theon cut the bonds between himself and the world, climbing out on a branch of the Tree of Life and sawing it off behind him. John intertwines his narrative branch with Egret's, a blue rose born of both worlds. He chose love. He chose humanity. He chose mercy. It doesn't save her in the long run from the divide between them, but as she says in the Storm of Swords, everyone dies, first they will live, and only because he spared her here. That's really well said, man. I really think that's that's awesome. I think, um, you know, you know, Egret just lives a little longer here uh, as a result of John's action, but what she also experiences and what she brings to John does transform his character here. And the the aspect about this final scene from A Clash of Kings, John 6, I think is interesting is that there's a potential it might be that George might have remixed something that happened in cinema around the same time that A Clash of Kings was released. And that is namely the the movie Saving Private Ryan and how that impacts John sparing Ygritte. Now, it's, it's unclear whether Ygritte was a character that George had fleshed out or was imagining was going to appear on the scene at some point in the story or whether this was a late invention in A Clash of Kings that just kind of garden its way into this lovely garden as we get into A Storm of Swords. The interesting thing about Saving Private Ryan, though, and this scene, though, is that Saving Private Ryan was released on July 24th, 1998, whereas A Clash of Kings was released on November 16th, 1998. So bear with me. I'm just using it as a framing device for what I'm about to talk about here. Everyone remembers the opening scene from, from that movie where the soldier storm, the, the Normandy Beach at Omaha Beach, and that tends to dominate people's memory. But a lot of the later scenes have a lot of – are much more moody and less like focused on – the abject horror of, of, of the war itself, even though they do retain that aspect of it. And one of the scenes I think is one of the best scenes is where they capture the German soldier and they are trying to figure out what to do with this guy, all, all the soldiers there. And everyone's saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. And one guy's saying, no, no, don't kill him because he can speak English, a little a smattering of English and has a resonance to this one soldier. And then the commander there, played by, by Tom Hanks, Captain Miller, ends up making the decision not to kill him, not to take him prisoner, but also but just to release him, just to send him down the road away from uh, – away from the war and away from the story. And that is, again, bringing it back to full circle for when I was talking about the start of this chapter. That ends up having a really major negative consequence for this team of soldiers in, in, in Normandy and in that this guy ends up coming back to fight against these guys at the, at the end battle. He ends up killing one of the guys that ends up freeing him from at the end of the battle. And that's what happens here with what with Corrin and his band. Corrin, John releases Egrit. She goes back out into the world and then she immediately links back up with Rattle, Rattleshirt. That's his name, right? Rattle, I can't remember his actual name. Rattleshirt and the rest of, of the wildlings and they come hunting for Corrin. So John's act of mercy is something that is both really, really good, and it does extend Egret's life a little bit longer than it would have. At the same time, it also brings down the wildlings onto them. And I think George may have been inspired by the movie, which came out a few months before A Clash of Kings was released. Perhaps he wrote all of these final John chapters in that light. It's unclear to me when the, the time of these chapters was written. But I do think, again, that George is inspired by cinema in a lot of ways, inspired by stories, and takes something, remixes it, and ends up making it, I think, even a little bit better than what we saw in the movie. Well, it's the, the question that George comes back to very explicitly with Davos and the Storm of Swords that was present in those those the Spielberg 90s movies, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, and Amistad, which is, you know, in the face of unrelenting ethical crises, what worth is it to save one life? And, you know, as Davos says in the Storm of Swords, everything. And that's the same idea you, you get out of those Spielberg movies. And I think it's the same idea you get from John here is that he, he can't... 
he doesn't know how to solve how things are between the wildlings and the watch, especially since he's not in charge yet, but he can try to pluck one life out of the war because he feels like it's his only moral option. And I think there's, there's a, yeah, the, the, the intimacy nestled within the larger movements of the war, I think is what, is what gives that its real power. So I think that about wraps up for our main portion of the episode. Let's first switching over to first shedding the groundwork. So John thinks that Squire Dalbridge squired for a king once, and that's why he retains this nickname of Squire Dalbridge. Now, it's left unclear in the narrative who the king was that Dalbridge squired for, but it was semi-canonically canonically, canonically confirmed to be King Jaehaerys II in the World of Ice and Fire app that came out in 2014. Again, maybe I should just rename these things like the Micah Minor Character Appreciation Corner, because since he loves his minor characters. Uh, but that's just a little tidbit of, of information we get revealed much, much later after Clash of Kings is published. Yeah, Dalbridge was briefly a squire and Jaehaerys II was only briefly a king. So it's just like these, you know, these faded memories of, of things that, that could have been been really but here we are now with with what we're left with so as i was uh, saying about mentioning mance raider and how he fits into all these patterns earlier mance is going to consciously recreate the bale the bard story or try to anyway at winterfell in a dance with dragons with jane the jane pool playing the role of the stark daughter and you know george really loves his threes of course his threefold structures and this is one of the big examples you have the legend of Bale, the you know close to present day backstory of Rhaegar, and then the actual present day of Mance. It's like the story is like advancing forward in time and finally showing up in the present day. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I think like it, it's unclear like what George was like planning this far out, but I do think that George might have gone back and read a Clash of Kings, especially the Bale the Bard story, and be like, okay, so Mance Raider is a singer, he's a deceiver, he also seems to like his songs. Oh, let's have him go back into Winterfell yet again as he infiltrates, as he's going to reveal in a storm of swords, he does infiltrate Winterfell the first time during Robert's feast, which of course is a bit of a retcon, as we talked about when we talked about John's first chapter from 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 a Game of Thrones. But it is something that that George kind of seamlessly retcons into the story. One of the other things is that George takes the mantra that John keeps repeating himself. One step and then another, John told himself. One step and then another, and I will not fall. And then he ends up recycling that kind of mantra for Samuel Tarly in his first Storm of Swords chapter. Sobbing, Sam took another step. So again, this is a spot where George is not necessarily recycling the words, but he's recycling like the the way the feeling of of pressing forward despite like the hardship that you're facing. John is in decidedly less hardship than than Sam is facing in this, at the start of a Storm of Swords, but it is a way that George reuses language to emphasize that. Both the common humanity of Sam and John, but also that they're both enduring the elements and still proceeding forward despite them. It's very much grounded in the physical situation that we're not leaping forward in time to the next important thing or their next important thought, but just with them in the moment. Finally, the way Egret is written in this scene, with fear and fire in her eyes as John is considering whether or not to kill her. Makes it seem like a preview for John making the opposite decision regarding Mercy when it comes to Danny, that fire would be in her eyes, that she's kissed by fire in the same way Egret is. That that definitely stands out on reread. Yeah, because I don't think it's gonna be fear that Danny will be experiencing at the end of, of, of her story. It's it's fear and fire. It's gonna be fire and blood is what Danny is likely going to what John's gonna see in Danny. And the potential for that spilling out to more parts of the world and that and of course his family too, which he values above all as he's as emphasized in this chapter several, several times. So moving into a theory and discussion, we've talked about Bale the Bard, the Bale the Bard myth as a parallel to Arpletil equals J. But it's interesting to think about this chapter itself as being a parallel to Arpletil equals J, that we are seeing a, a kind of a coded story about John's origins under the surface of this chapter. And as you were alluding to earlier, there's that theory that, that uh, Corrin Halfhand is Arthur Day and who survived in his disguise. And that theory is silly, but I think theories like that, I think, do pick up on parallels. They just are a little, a little overly literal about them. 
Like there is like there is that line that people point to in this chapter that Dawn and Corn Halfhand arrived together. Well, Arthur Dorn's Arthur Arthur Dorn. Arthur <laughs> That's his that's his name now. Arthur Dane's That's a Jeffism. Exactly. Arthur Dane's sword was named Dawn, so that sentence is kind of implying, oh, it's like Dawn arrived with Corn Halfhand. This the sword. That's it's it's Arthur Dane in disguise. And you know, you think about like, oh, it's these, you know, this 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 crew of men in black cloaks, like the Kingsguard and Eris's day, were these these you know efficient crew of men in white cloaks. And you have Squire Dalridge was squire to a king, and you have Barristan who introduces himself as a squire in this book. And you know, he was a member of that Kingsguard. And um, what I, what I think is interesting about that, just by putting all the little parallels together, like, oh, Mance is comparable to Rhaegar too. Like, you know, why is all of this here? And I think what's interesting about it is that. It puts John in kind of the Rhaegar position and Egret in the Lyanna position because there was that, you know, that mysterious kind of half, we kind of half know about time where Lyanna was the knight of the laughing tree and that Rhaegar was sent to go find her and that he, you know, reportedly just couldn't find her. And a lot of people have theorized that no, actually Rhaegar did find her and met her and fell in love with her and decided to spare her life and have a kid with her, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe... And I wanted to see what you think about this. Maybe we're seeing a version of that here, that, like, you know, Rhaegar was supposed to kill the Knight of the Laughing Tree on his father's orders, but he chose mercy. And maybe the, the Kingsguard were there and went off and, you know, maybe Arthur Dane walked away and let him do it. And uh, what, what do you think about that? I love that. I think it's a great theory. And I think, like, it also was something that we'll experience again in A Storm of Swords where – John is being told by people to go, you know, take Egret and 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 to take her the wildling way, so to speak, steal her away, and that does feed into what happens here, where you know John slash Rhaegar spares Egret slash Lyanna Stark, and then later on he John steals Egret away in the in the cave, and that's where John loses loses his virginity, and that's a, that's another parallel to what happens with Rhaegar and and, and likely happens with Rhaegar and Lyanna. Of course, like the wildling culture, it's not it's not that. I mean, I, I I hesitate to say that there's there's that consent is not a that consent is a big aspect of it because it does feel like that Egret and John want Egret wants John to steal her away. So I mean, I know that puts kind of in a gray area, but at the same time, I do think that ambiguity is supposed to exist also between Rhaegar and Lyanna as well. As as Robert says, you know, yeah, Rhaegar is right. the the rapist of the, of the series he raped Lyanna and stole her away when the reality is not the case, although it might have looked that way. And for John, it looks that way that he stole Lyanna away. Um, I do like the aspect, too, about Arthur Dane fulfilling that core and a half hand role of, of walking away and kind of standing aside. Uh, something that George has been asked about is like, you know, Arthur Dane seems like a really good guy from all the accounts we get. So how is it that he was able to, you know, withstand all of the terrible things that he witnessed under under Ares, the second Targaryen? And I do think that does give us a angle on Arthur Dane, which com- which makes him a little bit more noble of a character and also adds a little bit of complexity to him. Because in, in the real in the world of the Kingsguard, Arthur Dane should have obeyed Ares II and fulfilled the task that Ares set before him to hunt down the Knight of the Laughing Tree and to bring her to justice? No. But but him having resist him resisting him resisting Ares the second then puts us in the mindset that Arthur Dane is finally like rebelling against all of the atrocities that he watched Ares the second commit. And of course there afterwards it is Arthur Dane who is at the Tower of Joy and not on the Trident and likely protecting what he believes to be the king, namely as Jon Snow as the heir of Rhaegar Targaryen. So I think that adds that I think it's a great theory. I think it's a great way of of looking at these characters that George and, and George does this a whole lot throughout the series of paralleling 
characters and paralleling historical events with events that happen in, in, in the present time. Um, I was reminded recently by, by History of Westeros, and I'm a little bit by, beyond back for where I, I should be on their on their podcast, but they talked about how the, the story with, with Gilly and her baby and Dala and her baby is supposed to also parallel what happens with Robert Baratheon, or excuse me, with Ned Stark stealing away a baby and claiming it as his own sort of thing when Sam takes Aemon Steelsong down to down to High Garden or down to the Reach, rather, in Old Town in order to steal him away in the in order to protect the baby, the same way that Ned stole away Lyanna's baby in order to protect Jon Snow from uh, you know, from from Robert Baratheon. So there's all sorts of great ways that George is doing is telling the story of R plus L equals J. That he doesn't have to be like, okay, what happens in step one, step two, and step three? This is a three arc three act play for for Rhaegar and Lyanna. And it makes it a much more compelling story ultimately, and how the reveal is going to feel and how it's going to affect us as readers. And I think it's it's a way of getting us to emotionally access scenes that George is never going to actually show us. Like, we're never going to get detailed uh, look at Rhaegar and Lyanna's romance. Like, you know, we'll get bits and pieces from Bran's visions, maybe. But that's it. It's going to stay in the backstory. So, but, you know, but George wants us to emotionally feel it because he, you know, he puts a lot of romantic imagery and tragedy around Rhaegar and Lyanna. So he shows us a version so we can access the feelings of it anyway. Like, you know, when John feels that horror experiencing, oh, my God, it's a girl. That's what Rhaegar must have felt when he realized who the Knight of the Laughing Tree was. Oh, my God, it's a girl. What do I do? And when he thinks to himself, oh, am I my father's son? What would he do? What would he do? There's this great irony because his actual father, Rhaegar, might have faced this exact situation and made the same choice. But John doesn't know that's who he's talking about. In the same way, he doesn't. <laughs> he looks at the Bale of the Bard story and doesn't realize it's kind of about him. And I love that. That, you know, like like John will say again about the Storm of Swords, like, you know, we look up at the same stars and see such different things. And I love, you know, the, the bittersweetness of of John looking for his identity, but he doesn't know it even when he finds it. You know what I mean? I, I think that's a, a great sad part of his character. I love that, man. I think it's a great way that George is doing the storytelling. It's a great catches by you, sir, about what he's, he is doing here that goes beyond simply. Because, I mean, I was saying this in the minisode that, like, I feel like I had reduced in my mind and memory, like, the Bale the Bard story to just the R plus L, R plus L equals J stuff. And like just the very like very like on the nose like the the blue winter rose and the and the bed stealing the stealing the the daughter of of the of Lord Bran Stark away, but I think it goes deeper than that. I think those that's the points that you're that you're putting a, a nice little bow on top of that uh, the Arpel Silicos J stuff in this story. So I love it. It's great great stuff. So I think that about wraps us up for this analysis on A Clash of Kings, John 6. As always, thank you so much for listening. And thank you to all of you who have been watching, I guess, even despite the comment sections have been a fucking disaster. <laughs> all of you should be ashamed of yourself. Every single one of None you. None of you are free you, from Frank. sin. None of you are free from sin. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundClouds, Podbean, and of course, subscribe and like us on YouTube. It helps people find us. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybelle, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Brit, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, 
Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way, of course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjakut, Alchemist of the Set San Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Ghoul and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull Head Affair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lord Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Garden of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker of the Inn of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, and our two newest High Ladies, Titanium Pirate and Lady Carly. Thank you so much to our High Lords and Ladies, and a special welcome to Titanium Pirate and Lady Carly. Absolutely. Thank you to all of our High Lords and Ladies, and a special welcome to Titanium Pirate and Lady Carly. Thank you for joining our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings Sansa 4 in which puberty really kicks into gear and Sansa has no one but Cersei to help explain it to her. Even I feel sympathy <laughs> for Sansa. Poor, poor kid. It's never fun to be Sansa Stark, but especially not in this chapter. We'll, uh, we'll try to get through it together, everyone. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to those of you who watched us. And we'll see you all next week for a Clash of Kings Sansa 4.